I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. Ron Whitlock reports covered an important news conference held earlier this week at the Center for Educational and Economic Development in Mission. Congressman Henry Cuellar of Laredo and Vicente Gonzalez of McAllen answered specific questions. Are the Trump administration's migrant protection protocols effective? Should Mexican drug cartels be classified as terrorist organizations? And will the USMCA be passed before the end of the year? Texas Monthly reporter Carlos Sanchez opened their press conference with a question to Congressman Cuellar. I will be happy to answer any easy questions you might have. The U.S. trade, uh, NAFTA 2.1, uh, appropriations, and other things that we have to look at. Congressman, in the last couple of weeks, both the acting head of Homeland Security and ICE have declared MPP a success. Would you agree with that assessment? You have to look at what are you, uh, what are you going to determine as a, a success. If you're trying to hold people from coming in, uh, you can call that a success. If you're trying to provide a, a way that somebody has an opportunity uh, to go before an immigration judge, you might come up with a different conclusion itself. As you know, I, I've, uh, and I don't know about Vicente, but I've sat at the um, MPP uh, in uh, Laredo. Actually, I was there with Joaquin Castro. And we were looking at how the cases are handled uh, and what happens to them. Usually when somebody asks for asylum, generally speaking, if you have 100 cases, 88% of them are going to be rejected. Are they going to be rejected? So only 12% are going to be accepted. The way we were doing it before is we were letting everybody in and then they would wait, uh, you know, two, three, four years before they get a hearing, uh, and when the ones that were supposed to go up for a hearing two, three, four years, uh, 44% didn't even show up uh, for a hearing, would not even show up uh, for a hearing. Out of the ones that showed up, that as I mentioned, 88% of them would be rejected on it. Uh, we have uh, questions as to whether uh, they have access uh, to attorneys, and as you know, what's happening right now, most of the people from Central America, well, I shouldn't say most, a lot of people of Central Americans are saying, you know what, we're going home, we're not going to wait. The ones that are staying around are the Cubans, uh, the Venezuelans, or people from Africa. People that have traveled a lot longer are the ones that are saying, well, I want to have my day in court. But again, the percentage according to the uh, immigration courts, 88%, and we don't know if the MPPs are a little different, this is just generally speaking. Asylum cases, 88% of them are going to be never denied. And, and we also filed a bill last year, we should talk about that, yes. where uh, asking for migrants to be able to ask for asylum in their home country and in their embassies. We think that that's the best place for them to be able to ask for asylum. And that's where the evidence and witnesses that are required to really prove up your case are usually at. And that's also part of the reason of why asylum seekers have such a low uh, acceptance out of, the, out of the 100%. We need to come to terms with that. Even my own party needs to come to terms that... You know, more than 80% of asylum seekers never qualify for asylum, and my heart go out, goes out to all of them, but we need to be realistic on who qualifies and who, who does not, and uh, those who do, we should open our doors to them in an expedited way. We shouldn't have them hanging around across the border creating uh, just dangerous conditions, potentially. We think that in their home country or the neighboring country is the easiest and have an expedited process where we would have immigration judges 
uh, either through satellite or in person, hear cases and move them faster. We also need more immigration judges, both here and potentially in those in those Central American countries. Now, there's only three Central American countries where 75 percent of asylum seekers are coming from Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras. Uh, if we want a real long-term solution, we need to invest in security and and a potential economic opportunity in those countries like we have in Mexico. Mexican nationals, as you know, even with the violence and insecurity, they're not coming to the U.S. anymore. In fact, they're going home at a higher rate. And until we make those same investments in those three Central American countries, I believe we're going to keep dealing with this issue on our southern border. Keep in mind that in 2006, 90% of the people coming to the U.S. border uh, uh, were Mexicanos, and within hours, 95% of them would be returned, 2006. Uh, six months ago, because things have changed a little bit with the MPP, 73% uh, of those people that were coming in were Central Americans, Central Americans, and 97% of them would stay in the U.S. Also keep in mind that in 2006, 10% uh, 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 of the people coming across were unaccompanied kids and family units. Now it's over 61% that are, that are family units. So we've seen a, a change of the people. In the old days, it was young men that were coming in to work, mainly Mexicanos, uh, that were coming in. But now we've seen uh, different dynamics uh, that, are, that uh, we're seeing at play. And it's always changing depending on our policy, like unaccompanied children or men with a child, uh, depending what, what's happening on the borders how they adapt to coming across. So that's just a fact that we need to face. Yeah, you, you cannot um, underestimate uh, the uh, organizations, the criminal organizations. Uh, they got lawyers, they got accountants, they know what the rules are, they know what changes, uh, and they will adjust, you know, because remember, in 2006, 90% of them were Mexicanos. And then somebody figured out, oh, but if you bring your child with you, uh, then, you know, it's, you'll be treated very differently. You know the three categories that, that we've had. If you are an adult, you get put in uh, ICE detention. Those are the for-profit centers on it. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of the immigration judges. You got some bad apples there. I mean, you got good people, but you got a lot of bad apples. Those are the male adults. If you are a child, then you get put under Health and Human Services non-for-profit centers or shelters then they're, they're put with families and then the way it was and now it's changed under MPP if you're a family unit if you had a child with you then what would happen you would go to a bus station and then with a permiso you could go anywhere in the United States and of course we had some of the um, uh, shelters that were providing that and, and as you know we added money $30 million to get the reimbursements. Uh, I think all of y'all should have the amounts of reimbursements. Uh, there's still $21.98 million that will come in the second round by the end of this uh, year. Uh, and that should uh, get money to McAllen and, and uh, the charities and other places. So a lot of things, uh, what happens at the border, uh, the organizations adapt uh, and they bring people uh, into their countries. So, so can I follow up with them? So what is the significance of the, of the new classification foreign terrorist organization, the FTOs, from um, an appropriation standpoint, from a money standpoint, and also from a safety security standpoint for the communities on the border? Uh, I, and, and again, I'll say this. President George Bush, President Barack Obama, they all looked at classifying the drug organizations as terrorist groups. They looked at the pros and the cons and they decided that it was not worth going into it. Because, you know, what, some of the things you got to look at is, 
law enforcement has uh, a lot of tools uh, right now, a lot of tools that they have available right now. They have tools that are available. I mean, all you have to do, look at is look at the high target assets that, uh, that you know, law enforcement has been able to extradite, bring them over here. They're, some of them are going to stay there for the rest of their lives. Uh, keep in mind, there's also an executive order in place right now that can add some counterterrorism sanctions right now. So the question is, if you declare somebody, uh, and keep in mind, terrorist groups are usually ideology-driven type of organizations. Uh, and keep in mind that that you got to look at what tools does classifying them bring to the table. Is there something right now that's not available that you need to classify them? And that's, you know, what are the new tools? Then you look at what, uh, what happens with Mexico uh, on it. And as you know, the Mexicans are not very happy uh, with it. They're pushing back. Uh, and this is why I think President Bush and President Barack Obama said, let's take a look at it because we think we have enough tools. We don't know what President Trump is going to do. I don't think anybody does. Uh, so we're going to see uh, what, what happens uh, with that classification. Do you, do you think it could help to make the conditions safer for some of the MPPs that are staying in Matamoros or Nuevo Laredo and these... I don't see how it would. It just classifies uh, these groups as terrorists, which gives the Department of Justice and law enforcement on the U.S. side another uh, cause of action, if you will, a criminal action against them. But but we've had – there may be more funding. I don't know if there's more funding. But there's a huge pushback from the federal government. I think it would impact trade and business and many other things. Now, me personally, I'm not completely opposed to that idea because I see some of the murders and massacres that are happening in Mexico. And they don't look that different than what happens in some places in the Middle East. Now we need to, Now Mexico is our friend and neighbor, so we need to look at them differently. But um, some of the acts that you see in Mexico are no short of terrorist acts, in my opinion. The violence that you see, what we just saw uh, yesterday, uh, 17 deaths. The week before, uh, we had Cuyacan. The week before that, we had Chihuahua. I mean, when is this going to stop, and what do we need to do, and what efforts do we need to make uh, to pressure Mexico to increase their security efforts and ourselves on our border on our ports of entry to stop the guns and cash going back south. Yeah, and, and, and I agree with, uh, you know, what, what extra tool does it bring uh, to it? And, and I think what it does, it provides another way that they can charge somebody. But keep in mind that under a terrorist, it's aiding and abating. So what happens if you're uh, well, I shouldn't mention any story names, but what if you sell a weapon that goes across? Uh, what if you're a banking institution? Uh, I mean, so this, uh, you know, this c could catch unintended, uh, consequences. unintended consequences. And I think that's what President Bush and uh, President Obama looked at very carefully. They looked at it. Now, I I'm with uh, Vicente. I don't think hugs and kisses, to be honest with you, as the Mexican president, is going to do the work. I really don't think so. Uh, I I'll be happy to show you some videos off record right now of some real bad stuff happening in Mexico, and they need to do more. And I think both Vicente and I have uh, talked to, to the Mexicanos. I just got back from, uh, from Mexico actually a week ago, and I said, look, we can help you as far as you want us to help you. And I think we both use the same analogy. If there's a fire, does it really matter who that fireman is, you know, that, that wants to put out this fire? Uh, I think if, you know, we worry about the, 
you know, how that affects businesses uh, over here. Uh, but I also feel bad for the people that live over there. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll show you some things off the record, horrible things happening. Just recently, you know, they, you know, there's a video surveillance where some people go, you saw that where they went to a hospital looking for somebody and they, they apparently they wanted to get somebody there. So they got one of the patients that they were going after. They took them a few hours later, they found them cut up in pieces on that. So, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff on it. Hugs and kisses is not going to work. I'm telling you right now. Hugs and kisses in Mexico is not going to work. But again, I understand sovereignty. Uh, I understand history. I understand the sensitivity. I understand that the U.S. took over 55% of the Mexican uh, territory. So there's a lot of sensitivities. But again, I ask this question. doesn't matter uh, if there's a fire, who that fireman is. So does that suggest you support the idea of U.S. military intervention? No, no, of course not. Uh, those are firemen. No, really, I mean, there's law enforcement. Uh, there's law enforcement. Right now, we have a lot of law enforcement over there. Can we do more? Yes. Can we do intelligence? Yes. I mean, are we talking about sending the Marines? Of course not. I, I don't believe in that. Uh, I think the last time it happened was at 75 years ago, and I mean, that 1915, whatever. I respect the history. I respect the sovereignty. I just, I, and, and just a week ago, I posed that same question to the legislators that I met with. I said, does it matter who helps put that fire out? Again, hugs and kisses are not going to work without due respect. Now, me personally, I'm, my position is a little different than, than Andrew's. I'm not opposed to putting American military embedded with Mexican military uh, to fix the problem. If they have a plan and we have a, an exit strategy, we're going to go in, we're going to help you clean up, resolve the issue, take it neighborhood by neighborhood, town by town, state by state, in the places that most impacted, and then leave the country and leave it in a better place than it is today. I don't consider it to be a horrible idea. I know it's popular. Uh, it's unpopular with our friends to the south, but we got to talk about how that impacts trade. I know right now we're talking, I think this would be a, loss, a missed opportunity if we don't talk about that in the same conversation as trade, and you hear about it very little, but you wonder how trade has been impacted and how those trade routes from Monterrey and other hubs that drive to our border, that bring product to our border, that we send down, how is that being impacted? What's the extra security cost because of the insecurity in Mexico? And if we talk taxes and tariffs, how is that not a tax or a tariff? We have time for a final question. Yeah, just on the asylum stuff, a while ago, when people are seeking asylum, they usually fleeing dangerous or dire conditions. So how does waiting in those countries or in dangerous they can move. They can go to the, the neighboring country. But are they less safe? Well, 88% don't qualify ever. That's a fact. 88, yeah, red flag, 88. So, well, let me ask you this. Look at the asylum law. Does it cover those situations? It doesn't. I mean, if you look at the reading of the asylum law, it doesn't cover violent situation. I mean, it's bad. This is why we worked on, in 2015, we added $750 million. Uh, I mean, there's money already that we put in there uh, to help those countries. And uh, President Trump wanted to stop it just a few months ago, which I thought was crazy. I'm not talking about Ukraine. I'm talking about Central America. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he actually was trying to stop that. And, uh, and Pelosi, actually, when she came here, because uh, we had just come from Central America, she went up there and said, no, this is not going to happen. So the money, there was about $1.1 million, billion dollars that was available for them. Uh, so they should be able to use that money. But again, if you look at the asylum law, and I want all the reporters here, look at the asylum law. Does it cover that situation? It doesn't cover that situation. Sir, the MPP program, the Migrant Protection Protocols program, specifically states that Mexico will take care 
of these people, provide for their resources, and they're not. They're living in tents on the street. Again, the question was, does the asylum law cover violence? Unless if it's, it's the, the, the government uh, or, or, or another situation like that, violence is not covered. I mean, I feel bad for those people and we need to try to help them in any way we can. That's where we've been pushing uh, resources down there. It's not only the foreign aid that we want to give those countries, but we got to get OPIC uh, and uh, USID and other ways so we can get more businesses down there so there's more jobs created over there and hopefully less people join the gangs there. But again, again, I emphasize the question was, is does the asylum law cover those situations? The answer is no. Well, to be clear, the question was about when you're seeking asylum, isn't it because you're leaving a situation that is less than Not violence, though. No, but you're leaving something that's yeah, less of course. Desirable, right? Yeah. So why does making them wait in that situation make sense? As it, just it's to expedite. We need to find a way to expedite that asylum process in their home country. It shouldn't take months and years to be granted asylum. And then if you get it, if you grant an asylum, you get a, a piece of paper where you can go to the airport and pay $350 and get on a flight to Maryland or Houston or wherever it is you're going. Because right now they're paying thousands of dollars. And we calculated in financial services, we did a, a very conservative calculation. When we were getting, I got, we got 68,000 uh, refugees to my district alone, plus Henry's and, and Congressman Cuellar's district. So how, um, how can we invest in a way, in, in those countries that would that would limit the, the process. But we, we calculated about $580 million a month going to cartels, going to the bad guys that are bringing these people over. They're not coming here for free, and a lot of money's being wired from the United States from their relatives down to these people, the coyotes, if you will, that bring them across. And by letting them ask for asylum in their home country and get a piece of paper and get on a plane is much safer than the 1,500-mile trek that they're taking and they're getting raped and pillaged and, and killed and injured on the way up here. I think that's much more dangerous than staying in their home country and asking for asylum. And what I'm saying is, is not popular at all, especially with my party. But I believe living on the border and seeing what's happening here and knowing Central America and Mexico the way I do, I believe that that's the only solution. And getting to the root of the problem, which is investing making heavy investments, even five or six or seven hundred million dollars, and making billion, I mean, we spent 130 plus billion dollars on border security. Imagine if we took 10% of that and invested it where the root of the problem is, which is in Central America, to create a climate and an environment to, for natives to want to stay in their home country. Thank you. All right, uh, we'll have some time Can we just uh, mention one more thing on NAFTA 2.0 just real quickly? We're hoping that, that on, uh, and I still call it NAFTA 2.0 because it's 95% it's still NAFTA, uh, regardless of what name you want to use. We're hoping that this week uh, uh, there will be an agreement. We're close. Uh, I talked to, uh, with uh, Marcelo Ebra uh, a week ago. I talked to uh, Jesus Sade, who's the negotiator. I talked to the uh, U.S. Trade Representative uh, Robert Lighthizer. They're close. I talked to Pelosi's office. They're close. Uh, there's a couple of things that have to do with labor. Uh, it all depends on what Mexico is willing to accept. Uh, and I've always said this, uh, you know, I've told the Mexicans, hey, if Americans want to impose certain things on you, just say, make it, uh, add a little reciprocity. And of course, they're saying, no, 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 it's the other way around. Ask for reciprocity. So it has to do with labor enforcement. Uh, if we get it done this, if we get an agreement this week, then we can, uh, we got two weeks to get it passed. 
if we don't get it by this week, an agreement, uh, it's going to be hard. And I personally don't want to go and, and wait till next year because if you look at the Mexican economy, they're not growing. They're not growing. They need this trade agreement, and we certainly need, uh, need this trade agreement. Senator Quinn said this alongside you about this exact topic a couple of months ago when you guys were here, and he said it recently as well about the moving Trump a victory kind of thing for the, the Democrats. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, Republicans always say that, uh, but I would tell you that in the uh, meetings I've been at, I've always, I've only heard one Democrat say that, and the moment he said that, Pelosi turned around and said, "That's not true." This is what's good for the U.S. economy. She literally just said, and he was a senior, senior member there, uh, more years than us put together has been around, and he's going to vote no on the trade agreement. You know, I'll be very honest with you. Uh, she uh, shut him down real quickly. Uh, so, it, 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 and, and ours, when it comes to trade, it's a vote that depends on your district. You know, I, want to, I don't want to speak because I know Vicente is looking at the security, the road over there. For me, I just I asked that I wanted to get the Nat Bank, which, by the way, Nat Bank, uh, uh, Vicente helped get it out of committee. After it got committee, I asked Pelosi and Richie Neal, can you add the Nat Bank reauthorization with a couple of changes that I want uh, to be part of the implementing language right now? If everything goes fine, it will be part of the implementing language. Uh, but other folks, uh, one uh, enforcement and part of the issues right now is does can the US send monitors to Mexico that's really one of the last things that had to be worked out the Mexicans don't want people to go check on them unless if the Mexicans and the Canadians are able to come send their monitors to check on uh, on uh, American companies I mean uh, you know I think most of the companies wouldn't like that I gave them a suggestion how they could maybe get a little creative, but that's really one of the last things that's left there. Uh, the labor unions want certain things, and my thing is, if you got 80% of a deal, call that a victory, and let's move on and do it for the good of the economy. So again, with all due respect, I know Republicans always say this, Trump, I've only heard it one time, and Pelosi shut that person down pretty quickly. So, to make it clear, I'm, I'm for a trade agreement, but we need to pressure Mexico to do more on insecurity that they have. Thanks to our news partner, Ron Whitlock of Ron Whitlock Reports, for this news audio. According to news reports, President López Obrador plans to move the aduanas at the bridges into the interior of Mexico as far as 20 kilometers.